Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Let's read our passage from Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 29. And it came to pass, when Isaac had become old and his eyes dimmed from seeing, that he summoned Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. And he said, See now I have aged. I know not the day of my death. Now sharpen, if you please, your gear, your sword, and your bow, and go to the field and hunt game for me. Then make me delicacies such as I have loved, and bring it to me, and I will eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game to bring. But Rebekah had said to Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I heard your father speaking to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some game and make me delicacies to eat, and I will bless you in the presence of Adonai before my death. So now, my son, heed my voice to that which I command you. Go now to the flock and fetch me from there two choice young kids of the goats. And I will make them delicacies of your, for your father, and as he loves, and then bring it to your father, and he shall eat, so that he may bless you before his death. Jacob replied to Rebekah, his mother, but, but, brother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will fill me, and I shall be as a mocker in his eyes, and I will thus bring upon myself a curse rather than a blessing. But his mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son, and only heed my voice and go fetch them for me. So he went, fetched, and brought to his mother. And his mother made delicacies as his father loved. And Rebekah then took her older son Esau's clean garments, which were with her in the house, and clothed Jacob, her young son. With the skins of the goat kids, he covered his arms and his smooth-skinned neck. He placed the delicacies and the bread which she had made into the hand for her son Jacob. And he came into his father and said, Father, he said, Here am I. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, It is I, Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Rise up, please. Sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. My family pretty much says this to me every night. Isaac said to his son, how is it that you were so quick to find my son? And he said, because Adonai your God arranged it for me. And Isaac said to Jacob, come close if you please so I can feel you, my son. Are you indeed my son Esau or not? So Jacob drew close to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are Esau's hands. But he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like the hands of Esau's brother. So he blessed him and he said, You are indeed my son Esau. And he said, I am. And he said, Serve me and let me eat of my son's game that my soul may bless you. 
So he served him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come close, if you please, and kiss me, my son. So he drew close, and he kissed him. He smelled the fragrance of his garments and blessed him. And he said, See, the fragrance of my son is like the fragrance of a field, which Adonai had blessed. And may God give you of the dew of the heavens and of the fatness of the earth and abundant grain and wine. People will serve you, and regimes will prostrate themselves to you. Be a lord to your kinsmen, and your mother's sons will prostrate themselves to you. Cursed be they who curse you, and blessed be they who bless you. Amen. There's so much about this encounter that I want to touch on. There's so many insights that I want to try to go through uh, as much as we can, from both from Rabbi Monk brings down some insights, and then Ma'am Loez brings down some insights, and we're going to try to get to those, as I said, as much as possible. I've been uh, intrigued, um, seemingly more intrigued recently, with this, these concepts. Every, I think it probably began right about the time we were looking at Parashah Shemini. We were talking about the, um, the offering, or excuse me, the uh, incident of the golden calf, and how Hashem used... Uh, that incident, which was horrible, to actually bring the nation to a higher spiritual plane. And looking at that in, the, of, of, in respect to the paradox of how Hashem uses uh, really bad situations, sins, uh, failures, faults, uh, He allows these things to happen in order to bring an elevation. It's usually, in my, uh, the reason I find this so perplexing is because it's counterintuitive. It's the exact opposite of what we would naturally think. We would naturally think that the, ne- the way to get to the next level is to be holier, to be more righteous, to be more secluded with Hashem, to be more filled with the Holy Spirit and those kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting that that isn't the situation because usually that is the case. And yet there are times in which God allows, because ain't old Milvado, He allows failure he allows stumbling. He allows faults. And the reason he allows it is because it's going to bring you to the next higher level. And there's many, many, many examples of that. In fact, it's seemingly the most important things that we read about in the Bible, the most important um, uh, 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 situations that evolve come from such a circumstance. For instance, you know, we know, we know King Shlomo built the temple. So Shlomo was dedicated by God. This, this child will build my temple. Of all the children that King David had, you know, King David had lots of wives. He was a king. It's kind of normal. But even before he, before he had, became a king, he actually had two wives. Uh, Ani, Aninoam, I think, was the first wife's name. Or Milcha was the first wife. That was uh, actually King Saul's daughter. Milcha was the first. Then he had Aninoam. And then after that, he had Abigail. So he actually had three. And then he became king. He had more. So there's lots of wives that he had. And there's lots of children from those wives. And you would think, one would think that maybe Milchah would have a child. But unfortunately, uh, she didn't appreciate uh, David's personality and the way in which he served God and, and rejoiced before the Lord. So she was stricken with barrenness. Well, what about Aninoam? She seemed like a good girl. She could have had some good kids. What about Abigail? Abigail was a righteous, righteous woman. Uh, we named our chihuahua after her. Um, and, uh, you know, she's a righteous woman. She should have had some good kids too, right? But, it, but the child that was chosen, think about this. 
the son that was chosen to build the temple was the son of the woman with which or with whom David committed adultery, which is one of the three cardinal sins. And then if that wasn't bad enough, he in effect had her husband murdered. So adultery and murder associated with that marriage. Now, he did marry her after the fact, which is okay, I guess. But, you know, he committed adultery with her because she was a married woman at the time. So he, in fact, committed adultery. And then he uh, committed murder, uh, albeit by a weird kind of way. But it's still uh, murder. And then from that came King Solomon. Who would build the temple? And then King Solomon, we know his faults and failures. He didn't pay attention to the Torah, so he had lots of wives, way more than you're supposed to have. I, I think I read one time, I, don't quote me on this, but I believe the, the halakha was, somebody, I think somebody mentioned this once recently, that's why, why I know it, is that uh, a king is, cannot have any more than 18 wives. Somebody say that recently? 18 wives. Who said that? Did you say that, Amit? Somebody said that. I'm gonna, somebody got credit for that. I don't know who it was, but... That's not my credit, but 18 wives is uh, what a king should have. Yeah, life. God bless a king that has 18 wives. Mm. I mean, that's just, that's just too, that's too much. That, if I was going to write the Torah, that'd be too much. I'd knock it down a notch or two or ten. Uh, <laughs> but King Solomon had all these wives, and I don't remember how many he had. It was a bunch, right? 700 or 1,000? And he's just, he was crazy. <laughs> but in any case, he had all these problems and he got into idolatry and these kinds of things. And that's bad. And yet, from King Solomon comes Shir Hasharim, the Song of Songs, which as sages point out, is the holy of holies of all scripture. So, you know, you have these issues, right? And now we come, brings it back to our story. You have... A strange situation where God has said that the younger son is going to be the one to receive the blessing. And Rebecca knows this, but for whatever reason, she hasn't told Isaac. She didn't tell her husband Isaac, which is a little bit of a mystery. Hey, by the way, you know what the Lord told me today? The Lord told me, first of all, I'm going to have twins. Surprise. Secondly, you've got to work on that insurance program. Secondly, um, the younger son is actually going to be the one who's going to receive the blessing. She didn't tell Isaac that. She left it up to see what Isaac would do. Now, Isaac was a great man. Isaac laid down his life on the altar, but one of the problems Isaac was is he, he had a, a, a character flaw in that he misjudged his son. He fell for the bribery. He fell for, the, um, he fell for all the, uh, what's it called, the, the flattery. That's why they say we're not, you're not really supposed to flatter somebody too much. Um, but he fell for all the flattery, and he misjudged. He misjudged his son Esau, and he wanted to give Esau uh, the blessing. But Rebekah knew that the blessing was supposed to go to Jacob, and of course she loved Esau, the sages bring down, but she also knew what kind of a man that Esau was going to be. So she arranged and orchestrated for her son Jacob to lie, straight up lie to his father, to deceive him, completely deceive him. He didn't really want to. He did it reluctantly, but he did it because his mother encouraged him to. And then she said, like, let the curse be on me. 
But the point I want to, I'm trying to make here is that Jacob was supposed to receive the blessing. He did receive the blessing. It was a tremendous blessing. From him come the 12 tribes and everything that's glorious and wonderful about our nation and our people and our heritage. And yet, that blessing was received vis-a-vis trickery and deception and lying. It's just uh, amazing to me, but it, it, it just goes to show, as Hashem says in Isaiah 55, I believe it is, that His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens above the earth are so God's ways above ours. And it's a lesson to me also and all of us that whereas we get down on ourselves for our life's failures and faults and shortcomings, we have to understand that uh, this, this was par for the course for everybody in the Bible, all the heroes. Now, something interesting that I find this a little bit comical because I've said to my wife for years, you know, that, or, that when she cooks something nice or when we've gone somewhere and had something, you know, good to eat that I really enjoy, and I'll, I always make these little jokes, but, man, this, this whatever I mean here makes me want to prophesy. This is so good. Man, this is good. This is good stuff. I'm going to fall out in the spirit eating this. Uh, it's good. All right, well, what's funny about that is that that's exactly why Isaac asked for a good meal. Because it says, the sages point out in Shabbat uh, 30b that a prophetic spirit can only fall upon someone who is in a state of joy. This is why music is so important. Normally, music engenders a spirit of prophecy. Okay? So Isaac needed to prophesy over his son, and he wanted to stir up a spirit of prophecy within him, which comes via joy. But in the case of Isaac, it just so happened, and in his case, music didn't really get him to that state of prophecy, but a good dinner did, a good meal did. So I feel vindicated by this. Amen. So when I said, man, this, this meal wants to make me prophesy, I was being for real. I realized I was a Torah-based concept. I eat something good to eat, and I want to prophesy, Baruch Hashem. So I want us to look at this uh, opening passage. What caused the cause of Isaac's blindness? The cause of Isaac's blindness. It says here, trying to keep, keep track of Ma'am Loez, because you open that up and messes things up on you. It says, and his eyes dimmed for seeing. Isaac had begged God for a physical suffering. Now, this is, this is the next interesting point here. Isaac had begged God for physical suffering. This is one of the reasons why his eyes were dimmed. His argument was thus. If a man dies without suffering, his sentence in the hereafter will be brought upon him with full force. It is much better that he, be, that he atone on earth through his suffering. God replied, your request is justified, therefore I shall begin with you, Rabbah 65. In other words, it was pointing out here that there wasn't a lot of suffering among men up until Isaac made this request to allow suffering to come onto human beings. So people ask the question, this is very interesting because... You know, recently somebody asked a, a pastor person on, on, on the news, they were interviewing him, and they, they asked the person, the pastor, 
well, why does God allow suffering? And, and the pastor didn't really have an answer. He was like, well, you know, God's, you know, it's just mysterious, and, you know, and he kind of went on. And that's totally, I'm, I'm not faulting him. That's, that's a hard question to answer. But if you study the Torah, see, here's the thing. If you study the oral tradition, you realize God allows suffering as a point of mercy to reduce our judgment in the afterlife. So you, now you realize suffering is an act of mercy, right? And suffering can be varied. It can be degreed. It can be, it, suffering can be uh, something really serious or it can be something relatively minor. You say, well, I, I suffer from migraine headaches. Somebody around here, I suffer from migraine headaches when the weather rolls in. And so you're like, man, I hate when I get these migraine headaches. I understand it. I, I don't suffer from migraine headaches. My mama did. I understand that they really, really are terrible. But here's a silver lining to the cloud. Every time you have a, just to use this as an example, every time you have a migraine headache, you say, Hashem is reducing my suffering in the hereafter. Right? We have other tragedies that we've suffered through in life, and some of them have been serious. And we can say those tragedies are terrible. But rather than cursing the tragedy, which say, Hashem allowed me to go through that suffering to reduce my punishment in the life and the hereafter. So to me, that just says God is such a God of grace and mercy. So it says, on the day of final judgment, adds the author of the Sefer Hafetzheim, the faults of man can outweigh his merits and the verdict may condemn him, but physical suffering while he is living, which has the effect of atonement, can tip the scales of justice in the man's favor. Now, somebody might argue that, well, doesn't Yeshua do that with his atonement? Yes, absolutely. And God allows suffering in this world to, for us to be purified. Rabbi Yitzhak gives another reason for Isaac's blindness, which makes it seem to be his own fault. He points to the prohibition, and you shall take no gifts for corruption, for a gift of corruption blinds those who can see. It says Isaac did not accept gifts from his impious son, or he did accept, rather, in gifts from his impious son, the venison and the savory food which he loved. These things corrupted him with the result that his eyes dimmed. This explanation contains the idea that Isaac had become blind toward his son Esau, blind to his faults. Hence, this verse sets right at the start of the whole episode, clearly indicates the underlying cause of the patriarch's unjustified preference for Esau. In other words, Esau was bribing the judge. Esau was bribing the judge. You know, I, I heard a uh, well-meaning pastor many, many, many years ago, and he was, taught, he was encouraging his congregation to tithe and he said you know you realize that that when you bring a tithe to the king the king is is required to respond and I said wow you mean you're trying to bribe God like trying to bribe God that's exactly what Esau was trying to do he was trying to engender a response from his father trying to bribe his dad into choosing him and so this caused a mis misjudgment on Isaac's part. Another reason why Isaac was blind, it says, another reason that's given is that when he was laying on the altar, he was looking up to Shemaim, but he gazed upon God. Another reason that's given is that the angels, when they saw him upon the altar, that they wept tears, and those tears fell into his eyes and caused them to dim in his old age. These are different, different ideas and concepts of why he was blinded. Another reason that's given is that the incense offering that, his, that Esau's pagan wives were offering up were filling his house 
and blinding him. That, that, that incense were blinding him, which of course is not necessarily to be taken literally, but one might ask the question, why did he allow Esau to live there with his pagan wives? You know, if my, if my son is going to live in my house until he's 47, he's going to follow the house rules. Y'all can, y'all can bring McDonald's into the house, right? Chapter two, 27 and verse 2 says, Isaac said, Behold, if you please, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Ma'am Loez brings down that there are six things that are hidden from man's eyes. Even the greatest prophet cannot see them. Are you ready for this? It's important. The greatest prophet cannot know them. I don't care if you go to prophecy conference number 1027 with all of today's prophets lined up. Billy, no good. Brother, get you some. Uh, Sister, uh uh-huh. All of them. I'm going to tell you something. This is important. You need to know this because some people need to get rid of their tinfoil hats. Put them up. Bring them out on Purim. I'm serious. Here are the six things you cannot know, okay? Number one, you cannot know the day of your death. If a person that, that brings down here, Mamloes brings down, if a person knew when he would die, he would die earlier because of his great terror. <laughs> if you knew the day of your death, it'd scare you to death. Additionally, knowing that his life was about to end, if a person knew when he was going to die, he would not repent until the last minute. I might as well live it up. And then right before I die, I'll go to the Catholic Church and Father, Father, know, Father forgive me, right? He would also lose interest in the world and not want to have anything to do with it, which is exactly opposite of what God wants. He wants us to be in the world but not of the world. He wants us, the world, to flourish. So you're not going to know the day of your death, all right? Number two. Here's a big one. Ready for this? Okay, here it is. No one will ever know. Even the greatest prophet can never tell you the time of the Messiah is coming. Oh, everybody got... YouTube channels just crashed on me when I said that. <laughs> Whole three-hour videos just got thrown right over to the trash container. If people knew when he was coming, they would go out of their minds with grief, knowing for certain that he cannot come before the set time. Since we don't know when, we can hope that he can come all day long. Amen. See, when you know he's going to come, then it takes away your hope. Exact opposite of what you think it does. Number three, no one can know when the dominance of Edom, that is Western civilization, will fall. Woo! The greatest prophet cannot tell you when the dominance of Edom will fall. I recently watched a video and the person said that as soon as this COVID, what's coming next after COVID-19 is the coming of the Messiah and the fall of Western, Western civilization. Problem is, Ma'am Loez says no one can know that. So how come you know that? Even you're wearing a kippah and reading from the Talmud, I get it, but how can you know that? Ezekiel didn't know that. Jonah didn't know that. Isaiah didn't know that. They're rebuking you right now, actually, for saying you know that. We can hope that. I hope the Mashiach comes today. Today would be a good day. 
I hope the Mashiach comes from Rosh Hashanah. That'd be fantastic. It'd be great. Hope it comes this year. I'm ready. But I would never say that as soon as this COVID thing is over, he's coming. Everybody got disappointed on that. I, I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news. But I'm not looking for clickbait either. I'm not trying to increase subscribers. I'm trying to increase truth. Number four, uh, the man can't know the depth of the law. Nobody can know the depth of the law. If, a, if people would know it, they would not spend much time studying because no one knows it fully. People debate the law until it becomes clear. Number five, no one can know. Now, this is going to be important for everybody that wants to go to those seminars you hear on the radio. No prophet can know this. That is the secret of wealth. You're driving down the road and somebody says on the radio, I started this great business on how to acquire properties or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I want you to come to my free seminar and I'm going to teach you how to do it. Everybody flocks to them seminars. Now, why in the world would somebody who learned how to do something he's making killer bucks want to tell you about it? Hello? Anybody home? No, that's why you're showing up. Why? If I'm bringing down the bucks, buying property and selling and turning over, why in the world would I tell you about it? You know what that's called, my friends? called competition. Why would I do that? Why do I want you to be in competition with me and take my money away? So no, and by the way, and you see, I'm going to I'm going to teach you the secret of wealth. I asked my dad one time when I was a young, young teenager, I was driving on the road, driving on the road, and trying to loosen my load. And uh, <laughs> we listened to the uh, radio, and, and I, said, I said, Dad, Dad, what, what makes the stock market work? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you hit it big in the stock market? I mean, what, what's, what's the trick, you know? And my dad driving the road, he looked at me and he said, Son, if we knew that, We'd be rich. <laughs> I'll never forget him saying that. He may not remember telling me that, but I remember it. I was like, yeah, of course. And number six, the things you can't ever know, no prophet can tell you, and that is another person's thoughts. It says here, if this were known... It would be impossible to live. Boy, see, I wish I could read your mind. No, you don't. <laughs> now, a lot of people put their mind on Facebook, but that's why they get blocked, you know. Isaac said to Esau, tonight the angel were, were praising God so intensely that the gates of blessing have been opened. Now I am old and do not know when I'll die. So Ma'am Lois brings down that when a person comes within five years of the age at which his parents died, he must become concerned about his own demise. Just a rule of thumb that's used there. When you come within five years, you start thinking about um, your own demise. I want to bring something else to uh, light here. 
uh, just a quick aside, that I often point out that the separation of meat and dairy is a Torah commandment. And people come back and say, have said before, well, it says kids, which means goats, so how can you apply that to all, um, all red meat or all meat? And so it says here um, in, the, in the Torah that Rebekah told uh, her son to go and get two kids of the goats. So according to Scripture, if kid always meant a goat, then the Torah would not say kids of the goat. So therefore, the sages have pointed out that the word kids sometimes can apply to sheep, can apply to other animals, which is why the Torah makes, and this is not the only place this happens, but the Torah often says, go get a kid of the goats. That'd be like, go get a puppy of the dog. Okay, so this is why. I just want to point that out as, as a quick aside. Rebecca, a um, little something to mother's intuition. Rebecca was not taken in by Esau. Rabbi Monk brings down, she had long known that Esau's wicked instinct outweighed his good qualities. She knew of his duplicity, his hypocrisy, his appetite for the sensual, his brutality to animals, and his desire for monetary gain. In her eyes, Esau was a materialist to the depths of his very soul, while Jacob embodies the idealistic spirit of Abraham and Isaac with his whole being. And, of course, Rebecca had not forgotten the revelation that she had received from uh, God's prophets. Now, there's something else here that, Ma'am, excuse me, that Rabbi Monk brings down. This is a little insight talking about Adam being a virgin birth in a roundabout way. So Yeshua is the second Adam, right? Yeshua is the second Adam, which means he needs to be brought about pretty much like the first Adam was brought about. So the first Adam was brought about, he, there, was no, there was no mother or father on the earth. God, Adam, God created Adam, and then how did he create Adam? He created Adam by taking some dirt from the earth and moistening it with water, and he created the body, and then he breathed his spirit into Adam, right? So you could say that the Holy Spirit is what came over Adam to make it a life-giving being. So Adam was actually a virgin birth. Now later... That same thing happened, only this time God used a woman whose body, by the way, comes from the earth. That's why when we, go, when we die, from dust you came to dust you shall return. So a woman is only an Adam, an, an, a, a female, and a male too, but in this case a female, is simply an animation of the, of the ground. So you say, well, God could never bring forth a virgin birth from a, a woman. Well, he did from the ground, so what's the difference? Her, she's just the ground walking. He said, well, God can animate creation. Amet talked about the, the moving uh, golden cherubim. That would, could, imagine how amazing that would be. That reminded me when, I, when he said that, I was, in my mind, uh, I was thinking of Beauty and the Beast. You walk into the Holy of Holies and the little cherubim start, be our guest, be our guest. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, we are there. We are coming in there to dine on the divine presence. So, I mean, you know, the scene fits. But God can, God can animate some golden cherubim, but he can't bring a baby from a virgin. Okay, so it says here, Rebecca said, Let the curse be on me, my son. 
Which again, going back to where we started out our theme today, that the, the worst situations bring about the best results. It's so weird. So here you have Rebecca saying, listen, I'm going to take the curse for this. So she says, Rebecca allayed his fears saying, when Adam was cursed, it was upon his mother, which was the earth. Let me read that again. When Adam was cursed, it was the, his curse came upon his mother, which was the earth upon which the curse fell. So this is confirming that the mother of Adam was the earth itself. So God's spirit hovered over the earth and came upon the earth in order to animate Adam to be a living being. So God's spirit hovered over and, 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 and came upon Mary, Miriam, Slika, Miriam, in order to bring forth the Messiah. So she said, I too am prepared to take your curse upon myself. Besides, if the worst comes about, I would go to your father and say to him, Esau is wicked and Jacob is righteous. So she's going to go in there and say, this is all right anyway. She was absolutely sure of herself now it says that Jacob's voice you know or, or he said listen it's the voice is Jacob but the the arm is Esau just a really quick insight that our sages interpret that Jacob's only power lay in his voice which is his power of prayer and Torah study but Esau's weapons are his hands his brute strength his force and that their greatest philosopher was Balaam, the son of Beor. And they came to Beor, or excuse me, to Balaam, and they said, Do you think that we can overcome and, and defeat the Jews? And he replied, Go and see their synagogues and the houses of study. If you find children there who make their voices heard, you will have no power over them. For their ancestors promised them, As long as the voice of Jacob is heard, the hands of Esau are powerless against him. So another insight, what was the source of wine? We know that the meat was prepared by his mother, but there's nothing in the Torah that tells us that she gave Jacob wine to, to take to the father. That is added only after he gets there and he serves his father the, the meal and the wine. Now some might say, well, it's just implied that there's wine because anytime you order a meal, you get fries and a drink. But this is what it says in the deeper insights. Rabbi Monk brings this down. It says he brought him wine and he drank. It says the, the prosodists determined to stress this phrase marked with the word lo, with a very rare tonic accent note. Merka pefula. In this way, they draw our attention to what remains unexpressed in this verse. Namely, the miracle which must have occurred for Jacob to offer his father wine even though he had not received any from his mother. The Targum Yonatan explains that an angel came to bring Jacob tasty wine which had been kept in its grapes since the creation of the world. This wine brought out blessings 
and not the opposite, as is frequently the case with ordinary wine. It spurred Isaac on to give him the blessing, just as this same wine had previous done with King Melchizedek of Salem. So this teaches us that God orchestrated this whole situation and here Jacob is going to go in with this tasty meal and he's going to give a blessing to his, or try to, try to deceive his father to receive a blessing. So an angel shows up, maybe un, un, unknown to Jacob it was an angel, who said, oh, here's the wine you should give your father. And the wine that, that Isaac drinks that engenders a prophetic spirit is the wine that God made from the grapes of creation. said he smelled the fragrance of his field. The Torah tells us that, that uh, Rebekah went and got the garments of, of her son Esau from her own house, her own tent. Now what is Rebekah doing keeping Esau's clothes? Well, she didn't. She didn't keep all of his clothes. She just kept this special garment. So let's read just a little bit. This is the, the final uh, note here. There's a lot to say about this, but we're going to try to condense it down. It said, he smelled the fragrance of the field. And Rabbi Monk brings down, there's not, a, there's, there's not uh, an odor that can be more disagreeable than, than the height of a goat. This teaches us that it had been permeated with the fragrance of the Garden of Eden. To this explanation is given by Rashi, and the Zohar adds, the clothes worn by Jacob belonged to Esau, who through covetousness had taken them from King Nimrod, the great hunter. They had originally belonged to the first couple when they lived in paradise. Not paradise, Texas, but <laughs> gone again. Now Noah kept them in the ark during the flood. Nimrod subsequently appropriated them for himself, and then Esau took possession of them, he killed Nimrod and took him. By that time, they had lost the celestial fragrance of the Ganadin. Nevertheless, as soon as Jacob clothed himself in them, they regained their original fragrance. For Jacob had the same, he had the same being as Adam. He was a pure and righteous one, formed in the image of the first man. Now later, Jacob bequeathed these clothes, it says here, to Joseph. This is a source that the, the, the cloak that was given to Joseph was actually this. So it says, how did Isaac recognize the fragrance of a field which had Shem had blessed? That is, Ganadin. And the answer given is that when he laid down upon the altar to give his life up, which by the way is where Ganadin is, which is later the, where the temple would be, that the fragrance of Ganadin enveloped him. And that's why he knew what the field smelled like. So that he could say, you, he didn't say you smell like a, the, field, the, the field, but he talked about a field. You smell, like, you smell like a specific field. So it says, and may God give you of the dew of heavens. The Zohar brings these blessings and the, to the, uh, gives these blessings and the exceptional circumstances around them a deeper meaning. It seems that it, as the first step in repairing the harm caused by humanity... By the ruse and lies of the serpent of paradise at the beginning of Genesis, the treacherous serpent provoked the first sin, which brought a curse on mankind and on the earth itself. 
And that is how the forces of evil deprived man of the kindness and bliss which God had reserved for humanity. Now Jacob was the first man capable of restoring to the earth the initial blessing which the Creator wanted to lavish upon it. Physically and morally, he resembled Adam. Now, I started this whole drosh this morning talking about the paradox. And this final thing that I've just said is the great paradox. Because the serpent lied to the first man and woman and deceived them into taking the fruit. And now we have an insight here that says that here is now Jacob clothed in Adam's coat, which, by the way, is all part of the tikkun process. He looks like Adam, and the reason he looks like Adam is because he looks like his father, and his father looked like his father, and his father looked like Adam. So now he's wearing Adam's cloak, and he's standing there in an effort to begin the process of tikkun to undo what Adam had done, which was believe a lie. And the same thing with which God brings judgment, he brings healing. So in order to make tikkun about believing the lie, he's standing there dressed like Adam, looking like Adam, telling a lie to undo the lie. Baruch, Habab, Hashem, Adonai, Amen.